Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, September 29th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Russia has gained more territory in 2023 than Ukraine. So Russian forces have gained more territory in Ukraine this year than the Ukrainian side, despite the Ukrainian counteroffensive that was launched in June. And this was reported by the New York Times on Thursday. So this report noted that despite nine months of heavy fighting in Ukraine, very heavy, very bloody battles, Only about 500 square miles of territory has changed hands this year. Russia has gained 331 square miles, while Ukraine has gained 143, a difference of 188 square miles, which amounts to Russia's net gain in territory so far this year. So most of the fighting in the first half of this year focused around the Donbass city of Bakhmut, which Russia fully captured in May after a brutal battle that started in August 2022. So it was a very long uh, battle there. And Ukraine's counteroffensive has focused on the south, but there's been fighting uh, also has continued near Bakhmut and along the entire eastern front. So there's just been a ton of fighting. But despite that, uh, the territory has not changed very much. So this New York Times report quoted Marina Miron, who they said is a postdoctoral researcher in war studies at King's College London, and she said that Russia appears to be comfortable holding the territory that it currently controls rather than seeking rapid gains. She said, quote, it's not losing anything by not moving forward. The whole strategy in Ukraine is for the Russians to let the Ukrainians run against those defenses, kill as many as possible, and destroy as much Western equipment as possible, end quote. So if you're watching here, I just put in a tweet from Bryce Green. Uh, He's a really good writer. He writes for FAIR, um, and he covers Ukraine very well. But if you see this map here, this is the graphic from the New York Times of the territory gained by Ukraine and gained by Russia since January 1st of this year. And I mean, you just see these little areas here compared to all the territory that Russia has captured. It's really nothing. And how many people have died this year, you know, fighting for this territory? You know, could be in the hundred, at least casualties, killed and wounded, must be in the hundreds of thousands by now. Um, And we're just talking about 2023. And this New York Times report said that the situation on the battlefield comes with huge risks for Ukraine since it could lose Western support without significant gains. Moran said, quote, Russia is trying to wait out until the West turns its back, end quote. So the real infuriating thing about this is that we knew that the U.S. did not think you know, Ukraine would be able to regain significant territory, that they essentially knew this would be the outcome of this counteroffensive. And we know that through the Discord leaks, which there was a document that showed the U.S. did not think Ukraine would have much success in its counteroffensive. And there was a lot of media reports, you know, U.S. officials speaking anonymously to the media, also Ukrainian officials doing so as well, saying that they don't 
that you know have the capabilities to pull off a counteroffensive where they gain a lot of territory. Uh, but that didn't matter to the Biden administration. They pushed for this counteroffensive anyway. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, right before the counteroffensive started, he gave this you know unhinged speech about how um, you know the U.S. opposes a ceasefire and disparaged other countries for suggesting that there should be a ceasefire. And if you remember, in July, the Wall Street Journal reported that Western officials knew Ukrainian forces did not have enough training or equipment for their counteroffensive, but they hoped that they would break through anyway. They hoped for a repeat in the of the situation in Kharkiv in the in the north, where uh, last year Ukraine did gain some territory. Um, and really, that was a case of Russia just didn't have enough troops to hold that area, so they just withdrew. And it was a surprise kind of offensive that like success that Ukraine had there. And also in Kherson in the south, Russia withdrew uh, to the other side of the Dnieper River. Kind of similar thing. They, they didn't think they could defend that territory, I guess, and they pulled out. You know, there wasn't some big grinding battle for Ukraine to take that territory, um, it was kind of these surprise gains that they made because Russia decided not to try to defend these areas. So they're hoping something like that would happen again. Uh, but Russia spent the winter. A lot of people thought this past winter there would be a Russian offensive, another Russian offensive. But they spent the winter instead fortifying their defenses. And uh, this has been the result. And now there is uh, rumors that Russia might go on the offensive this winter. You know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but I'm sure they at least want to try to take the rest of the Donbass region. Um, there's signs that they might want to try to push west to Odessa to take Ukraine's entire uh, coastline. Um, who knows what's going to happen? But, you know, the, the lack of progress on the Ukrainian side has not phased the Biden administration. They are determined to support an open-ended conflict. The political winds are kind of shifting in in D.C. Hopefully this Republican opposition to this proxy war keeps growing. But in the meantime, you know, the hawks in Congress, the way that they're they're trying to sell this proxy war as a success, they're saying, you know, Russia is taking losses and no Americans are dying. Isn't that great? And, you know, we see this from bipartisan from both sides of the aisle in the Senate. Mitt Romney said that. Richard Blumenthal said it. And they, it just shows they don't care about the uh, Ukrainian lives that are being lost in this. This is just about, you know, bogging Russia down in this war. So, um, and Russia, definitely, time is definitely on the Russian side here. All right, so the next one here, Zelensky discusses joint arms production with Western officials. So French Defense Minister Sebastian Lecornu met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in Kiev on Thursday and discussed joint weapons production a day before Ukraine will host a forum of international contractors. So France's, uh, France's defense minister said in a video that was posted on Zelensky's telegram, quote, I discussed with your ministers very specifically how French industry can help you we, of course, will continue this work, end quote. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg and Grant Schaps, who's Britain's new defense minister, they were also in Kiev on Thursday to discuss military support for Ukraine and the arms industry forum that will be held on Friday. Stoltenberg said at a joint press conference with Zelensky, quote, I look forward to further encouraging news from tomorrow's International Defense Industry Forum here in Kiev. 
With participation from NATO and over 20 countries, it will be an important opportunity for Ukrainian companies to forge new partnerships with industry across the alliance and beyond, end quote. Joint weapons production with Ukraine could be a lucrative endeavor for Western arms makers, although factories located in Ukraine risk being targeted by Russia, but that uh, threat has not deterred all Western firms. In July, the German arms maker uh, Rheinmetall announced plans to open a factory in Ukraine to produce tanks and other armored vehicles. So after Zelensky met with President Biden in Washington last week, I actually missed this. I just saw it when I was doing research for this article. But Zelensky said that he secured a long-term agreement with the United States to work on producing weapons together. Uh, I don't know what the details are on that exactly, but this is part of it. This is part of NATO is looking at this long-term support and you know intertwining their defense industry or the military industrial complex with Ukraine's uh, is one way that they want to do it. Again, I think doing it in Ukraine is definitely uh, going to be tricky for them, but um, you know they might get some things going in Europe. And uh, Stoltenberg also mentioned NATO efforts to replenish their military stockpiles that have been depleted by sending weapons to Ukraine. He said, quote, I can confirm that NATO now has framework contracts in place for 2.4 billion euros worth of key ammunition. This will help allies refill their stocks while continuing to support Ukraine, end quote. So earlier this year, Stoltenberg actually said that Ukraine was using artillery ammunition at a faster rate than the entire NATO alliance can produce, raising questions about the sustainability of the proxy war. While the U.S. and other NATO countries are boosting production, significant results are not expected to be seen for years to really get that uh, manufacturing ability up to that level that they need to. And then on the other hand, you have Russia, and there was that recent report from the New York Times with officials saying that Russia has doubled uh, its production of tanks and ammunition. So another thing questioning the sustainability of you know this proxy war. All right, so the next one here, Senator Rand Paul says withdraw Ukraine money to avoid a shutdown. So this article is from The Hill, and it just covers this tweet that Rand Paul sent out. So Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky reiterated his threat Thursday to hold up a Senate government funding bill because it includes more than $6 billion in funding for Ukraine. Paul wrote on X, that he would only allow a vote on the spending stopgap before the September 30th deadline for funding government if Senate leaders pull out the money for Ukraine. He said, quote, to avoid a government shutdown, I will consent to an expedited vote on a clean continuing resolution without Ukraine aid on it. If leadership insists on funding another country's government at the expense of our own government, all blame arrests with their intransigence, end quote. So far, neither minority leader, sorry, majority leader Chuck Schumer nor Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell have signaled any willingness to pull the Ukraine money out of the bill. McConnell said he was comfortable with the way that the Senate put together the bill. So Rand Paul has the power using some procedural, you know, mechanisms to delay the vote. And with the government shutdown, you know, if they don't get this thing passed by Saturday, then there's the government shutdown, you know, partial shutdown. The government keeps running. Um, They just suspend some certain things. But they're actually anticipating Paul's objections uh, 
to, you know, delaying things. So they told the senators to expect to vote through Sunday to get the temporary funding measure through the Senate. And it would fund the government until November 17th. So it looks like one way or another, they're going to get it passed. But um, at least through the Senate, the House is a whole nother story. But Rand Paul is definitely going to make it difficult for the uh, Senate to get it done. All right. The next one here is Secretary of State Antony Blinken says that China threatens the liberal world order. So Blinken on Thursday claimed that China is seeking to become the dominant world power and wants to replace the U.S.-led liberal world order. When asked by The Atlantic's Jeffrey Goldberg if Russia or China is a bigger threat to the U.S., Blinken said that China has, quote, a much greater ability, certainly, than Russia to try to shape what the international system looks like, end quote. So Blinken's comments reflect the strategy documents that have been produced by the Biden administration, including the Pentagon's national defense strategy. The latest one was issued in 2022, and that named China as the top threat, with Russia falling in second. Blinken said, quote, I think they want a world order, but the world order that they seek is profoundly illiberal in nature. Ours is liberal with a small L, and that's the fundamental difference, end quote. So when asked what he thinks China wants, Blinken said, quote, I think that what it seeks to be is the dominant power in the world militarily, economically, diplomatically, end quote. So it's just something to see, you know, Blinken say that China wants, you know, is trying to take over the world. That's essentially what he's saying. Try to try to supplant. They want to supplant the U.S. as the world's global hegemon. And what's interesting about that is that, you know, you see this claim from Blinken. And this is kind of a common thing that you hear from China hawks, you know, in Congress and in media that they're trying to take over the world. But if you look at what the U.S. is actually doing, the whole China policy, their strategy in, in Asia is to prevent China from becoming the hegemon in Southeast Asia in their own you know neck of the woods. That's what this is all about, carrying uh, what's going on in Taiwan, uh, increasing all these bases in the Philippines and activity in the South China Sea. Um, you know, that's what the U.S. is really threatened by. And that's what these... Uh, you know, neocons and, and the people that think the U.S. should dominate the world. That's why they don't want Russia to have influence in Ukraine. It's it's not about Russia taking over the world. It's about, you know, the U.S. not having influence, you know, not having control right on Russia's border. And it's the same thing with China. Um, all right. So the next one here, Australia forms long range missile brigade to counter China. So Australia on Thursday announced a restructuring of its army that's part of a military overhaul aimed at countering China, which is Australia's largest trading partner. The restructuring includes creating a long-range missile brigade in the southern city of uh, Adelaide, which I think I'm pronouncing that right. I should have. I know I have some Australian listeners, so let me know if I said that wrong. Adelaide, which is the capital of South Australia. And it's very far from any potential theater for war with China. Uh, if you look at the map here, it's you know about as far south as you can get. Um, not quite as far south as as Melbourne or Melbourne, excuse me. Um, but it's uh, it's pretty far south. It's kind of an interesting place for them to choose to put this missile brigade. 
Um, and this effort also involves moving about 800 troops from Adelaide north to the cities of Brisbane and Townsville and Darwin to help create three more specialized combat brigades. In Darwin, a light combat brigade that's easy to deploy will be formed. Townsville will see the formation of an armored combat brigade, and a brigade mixing both elements will be based in Brisbane, uh, and the Australian Defense Ministry has called this a motorized combat brigade. So the Defense Ministry said that the missile brigade in Adelaide will become future-focused with key future long-range strike capabilities, but... The only weapons that they mention in this uh, press release from the Defense Ministry is the NASMs, which are an air defense system, and the HIMARS rocket system. And HIMARS are considered, you know, long range for the type of like artillery system that they are, but their maximum range is only about 190 miles. So I don't know what kind of long range capabilities they're going to have here. Australia did announce last month that they will be purchasing 200 Tomahawk missiles from the U.S., and they have a range of about 1,000 miles, but still, if based in Adelaide, I mean, that can't even fire, you know, hit the northern Australian coast. So I don't know what they're going to expect to be able to really do from down there unless they get ICBMs or something. Um, So Australian media has described this restructuring, which is just moving 800 troops from the south to the northern cities. They're calling it the biggest army overhaul in more than a decade. And they say that it's designed to prepare the nation's military for a possible conflict in nearby Indo-Pacific islands. The military review that spurred the restructuring named China as Australia's biggest threat, despite the economic ties between the two nations. The review claimed that China's assertion of sovereignty over the South China Sea threatens the global rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific in a way that adversely impacts Australia's national interests. So uh, it's just strange to see what Australia is doing here. And I mean, this just seems like they're doing this to placate the U.S. Because again, if you look at what they're actually announcing here, it's really not much. Um, But, you know, they're calling it this huge army overhaul. And they're just moving a few hundred troops around. Um so, you know, it's just, it seems like they're doing something to say they're doing something. I mean, there, I guess their other big thing is buying the nuclear powered submarines from the U.S. and signing that AUKUS defense pact that they're going to eventually make their own submarines, but that's years and decades down the line that that's going to be, that they're really going to be able to produce nuclear uh, powered. Did I say nuclear armed? I meant nuclear powered submarines. All right, so the next one here, Saudi Arabia and China to hold second ever joint naval exercise. So Saudi Arabia and China are set to hold their second ever joint naval exercise as Riyadh continues to move closer to Beijing. So the Chinese Defense Ministry said, quote, this joint training focuses on overseas maritime counterterrorism operations, conducting exercises on sniper tactics, boat driving, helicopter landing, and joint rescue, end quote. The drills will take place in October in China's southern Guangdong province. The last time the Saudis and the Chinese held joint naval exercises was in 2019. So the new drills come as the Biden administration is discussing the idea of a mutual defense treaty with Saudi Arabia as part of this potential normalization deal between Saudi and Israel. The U.S. is looking to counter China's influence in the Middle East, but that has not swayed the Saudis from forging stronger ties with Beijing. Uh, 
So kind of my pessimistic view on this, on uh, the Saudis normalizing with Iran, which is definitely good, um, them, you know, moving closer to China, it seems like they have a lot of leverage right now over the U.S. and they are asking the U.S. for something really big here with this mutual defense treaty. According to these reports about these normalization talks for MBS, the crown prince, this is like the most important thing is this, you know, mutual defense treaty with the U.S., and, you know, with China being such a priority, you know, I get, I bet the Saudis can, you know, work something out with the U.S. and agree, okay, well, you know, stop doing the naval drills with China. Maybe, you know, they'll stop some other economic things uh, if they get this military deal. But hopefully not. Uh, hopefully that's just, um, you know, my negative way of looking at it. And it and it turns out that the Saudis and and the Iranians are really interested in uh, good relations and peace. Um, all right, so the next one here, the U.S.-backed SDF militia in Syria shells positions taken by Arab fighters. So this article is from Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute, and it says that the Kurdish-led and U.S.-backed Syrian Democratic Forces, that's the FDS, SDF, they moved reinforcements to the province of Deir Azor in Syria, for continued fighting on Tuesday in eastern Syria, illegally occupied by American forces and their F- SDF partners, ethnic tensions have been boiling over and clashes have been erupting for weeks between the Washington-supported group and local Arab tribesmen. And these Deir Azor tribesmen were, at one point, backed by the U.S., um, so Arab gunmen associated with the tribal leaders there took over at least three positions uh, on Monday and then... Uh, a number of SDF fighters were killed, so they're shelling those areas. So basically, the, sh- the fighting uh, between these two U.S.-backed forces continues. Uh, again, the Arabs probably don't receive much backing from the U.S. now. It's mainly the SDF, um, and they, you know, this is a problem. There are, is ethnic tensions because they took over areas that they uh, that ISIS controlled, and they haven't left. Um, they've continued to occupy those areas. Uh, All right, so the next one here, Nagorno-Karabakh government will cease to exist on January 1st. So Nagorno-Karabakh authorities, this article is from Al Jazeera, just about the situation in Nagorno-Karabakh. And the government there, known as the Republic of Artsakh, has ordered the dismantling of the region's state institutions by the end of the year. So they've completely surrendered and capitulated to Azerbaijan, which has them surrounded And they said that the separatist state will cease to exist as of January 1st, 2024. So this decision came in a decree signed by the region's separatist president on Thursday as more than half of the 120,000 ethnic Armenians who used to live in the enclave fled into Armenia following a military operation by Azerbaijani forces last week. The document cited the ceasefire agreement last week, which ended the fighting, Under the agreement, Azerbaijan said it will allow the free, voluntary, and unhindered movement of Nagorno-Karabakh residents. So um, Azerbaijan is saying that the ethnic Armenians that live in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh, which if you're watching the video here, it's highlighted. It looks like in black. That's the territory of Nagorno-Karabakh. Azerbaijan said that Armenians can stay, but they don't trust the uh, Azerbaijani government, they just had Nagorno-Karabakh under a brutal blockade for months and months. 
Um, so they're fleeing and, you know, there's something like over 65,000 of these ethnic Armenians have left for Armenia. Um, so it is ethnic cleansing that that's happening here. And, um, you know, it's interesting. You kind of get mixed reactions. The Biden administration is pretty quiet about this. The U.S. gives Azerbaijan military assistance. At the same time, you have a lot of people in Congress calling for the U.S. to sanction Azerbaijan and cut off military assistance to them. And then they, they want to start giving military aid, more military aid to Armenia. Because um, there's kind of, I think, a strong Armenian lobby in the U.S. Uh, but the Biden administration doesn't seem to be swayed by this pressure. I saw them condemn when Azerbaijan launched the military assault. Uh, but they haven't said much about what's happening right now. Um so that's the situation there. Uh, all right. So the last story here is one from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. SpaceX awarded a $7 million Pentagon contract. So SpaceX, the company owned by Elon Musk, inked a deal with the Department of Defense to provide the Pentagon with a secure satellite-based communications network. Recently, several members of Congress have attacked Musk and called for an investigation into SpaceX's contracts with the Pentagon. So on Wednesday, CNBC received confirmation from a Space Force official that SpaceX made a $70 million agreement with the Pentagon on September 1st. Under the contract, the Musk-owned company will provide the Department of Defense with StarShield, and according to SpaceX, StarShield is a variation of Starlink, but is designed for militaries. Um... So, which is interesting. I wonder if that's anything that they've given to Ukraine. As far as I know, they're just giving them the regular uh, Starlink uh, terminals. Um, and then Kyle just mentions recently how everybody's mad at Elon Musk um, for not turning on Starlink in an area of Crimea that would have facilitated a Ukrainian attack on Crimea. And what's interesting about that is Musk, Musk said that U.S. sanctions uh, prohibited him from doing that. Um you know, those are U.S. sanctions on Crimea that ban business in Crimea. Um, but it's interesting. Um, but now the Pentagon, since then, SpaceX signed a contract with the Pentagon related to Starlink in Ukraine. And the details of that, we don't really know. But um, SpaceX has a lot of contracts with the Pentagon and they got another one. So he didn't make them too angry. Um, but that's it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. One from Jeffrey Sachs. NATO admits that Ukraine war is the war of NATO expansion. One from Ted Snyder, Volodymyr Zelensky between a rock and a hard place. One from Andrea Mazzarino, contemplating the unimaginable unimaginable costs of a nuclear war. One from Kit Clarenberg, British intelligence in the dock for CIA torture. One from Gregory Schupak, media completely ignores NATO war role, role in Libya chaos. Uh, but that is everything for me for the whole week. You could always help us out by sharing this show, telling your friends about antiwar.com. Follow us on Twitter at the Camp Dave is my account. You could also follow the antiwar.com account. Um, but I'll be back after the weekend with some more news for you. I hope everybody has a good one. Thanks for listening.